WMUN, all kinds of people, hosted by Dr. Joe Mashevitz, getting to know the people of Muncie and Delaware County, Indiana, in a way you've never heard before. It's another way we're using our voice to build our community from Woof Boom Radio and 92.5 FM, 1340 AM, WMUN. Here's your host, Dr. Joe. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to All Kinds of People. And today it's Jeff Mearns. Jeff, welcome to All Kinds of People. It's great to be with you, Dr. Joe. I think many people in the community know you as President Mearns at Ball State. But I'm going to take you back to Prosecutor and Professor Mearns. Thank you as we have a little chat about your career and your path and um, I want to go back to family because you grew up in a family with a few siblings. I grew up as an only child. Thank you. And I wonder if you can recall a memory or two of what that was like back in the day, getting up and during maybe elementary school days and into high school, the activities of the family. Sure thing. So both of my parents were only children. And then they overcompensated and had nine <laughs> children and 31 grandchildren. So, yes, I was one nine of nine. children and yeah. 31 grandchildren. Correct. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I was the fifth of nine. Okay. Uh, the oldest was my only brother. You were the middle negotiator. I was the middle. Three older sisters and four younger sisters, about an 18-year span. My brother was a freshman in college when my youngest sister was born. And so okay. I learned to wow. navigate a world with... Lots of people around, and uh, I have just tons and tons, tons of, of memories and fond, very fond memories. It was a, a family, because of my parents, a family filled with unconditional love and great care and compassion for children, friends, and neighbors, and so very fond memories. Um, my father was a law professor for 40 years, so oh. um, we didn't have a, we were, we lived comfortably, but uh, we were not wealthy by any means, but uh, always felt that we had everything we needed and great admiration for both of my parents. My mother, particularly in the summer with those age spans, I think she was in the kitchen preparing breakfast, lunch, or dinner from about 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. I can't p. imagine. That's like running a small little restaurant someplace <laughs> right. for other people. And then my father um, was all, you know, because of his, the flexibility of his teaching, he was around. He was home for dinner. I almost would always see him also at, at breakfast. Spring break, fall break. He would come to sporting Perfect. events uh, in the afternoon on the weekends. So uh, I can't imagine a better way to grow up. Were the siblings involved in a lot of sports and even if it was a group, say in the backyard or anything? So we were, were a, competitive? Yeah, we were a competitive group. My father was a very good athlete, very good basketball player and a very good runner. My brother was a very good runner. Okay. Several of my siblings were, were good athletes and, and so I grew up in a in a competitive household. So a little sibling competitiveness, yes. Okay. Exactly. So um you you were an English major at Yale. 
Were you off in a direction of writing or teaching or before the law bug kind of hit you? What, what was this English major all about? I was just hoping to earn enough credits to graduate in four years. Um, my I, par- I share that with you. Thank yes. you. <laughs> my parents had a, had a rule. When you have nine kids, first of all, for us, college was four years. Not five or six. College was four years. Right. And the rule was you could come home for one summer after you graduated. But by Labor Day, you were out of the house whether you had a job or not. So by spring of senior year, it created a little bit of incentive to make sure you had gainful employment. Um, I'm, I'm very fascinated by that because my cousins and I were all born and raised in the exact same way. Once you graduated, you had the summer. And then you were gone. Right. So I enjoyed reading, so, I enjoyed writing, uh, but also um, in college, I was pretty focused on competitive athletics. Uh, I was running cross-country in the fall, competing in indoor track all winter, and competing in outdoor track. So I was... So varsity letters. Varsity letters. I was captain of the cross-country team. So I was um, I was not just training all year round. We were competing. Competing all, all the time round. as well. Yeah. So that kept you busy, obviously, traveling around. Yes. And... Um, once you got kind of done with all that, what was that first career path? So I taught high school English for okay. three years at a private prep school, Catholic prep school in Morristown, New Jersey, okay. about an hour due west of New York City. And that's where I met Jennifer. So I taught high school English for three years and then went off to law school at the University of Virginia. Yeah, at the University of Virginia. And was was the law school triggered by your father's? employment, your father's career path? So we grew up around the dinner table um, talking about some of those issues. It, I thought when I was in college that I would likely go to law school. I decided to, to delay it for a while to make sure I wanted to do that and also to continue to compete as a distance runner. Distance runner. But so, yes, I think it was influenced by my father. There were there's, Of those nine children, if I think correctly, four or five of us have law degrees. Really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So as you can imagine, around the dinner table, it's not just a discussion. It's actually a Socratic debate. No. <laughs> Everybody's on the witness stand, thank you, about right. a variety of issues. It, it doesn't go too well when you're the father at the table with five children <laughs> and a wife who really don't oh, enjoy the man. exercise as much as we did. And uh, what, what kind of led you to the University of Virginia? Given, given a variety of law schools, Ron, I'm just always curious about what people decide when they pursue another degree. So actually, I was born and raised in Charlottesville, Virginia, because okay. my father mm-hmm. also went to the University of Virginia Law School. And when he graduated, he went right on to the law school faculty. So it's, I had the great good fortune of being able ah. to be admitted to Virginia. It's, um, it's, and what's special about UVA, I think, is the culture of the institution coupled with a law school that is preparing you for the practice of law. Some law schools focus a little too much on theory and policy. The University of Virginia understands that the school is about preparing its Being graduates very involved to be in the cases. And, yes. Yeah, okay. And um, did you continue to run and do things while you were pursuing the law degree? I did. I competed uh, pretty seriously all through when I was teaching high school and when I was in law school and a little bit thereafter. But by the time I graduated from law school, of course, my my work was pretty demanding. So I started dialing down the distance running. Yeah, I don't I don't have a concept of being a prosecutor, as you were, and involved in some of the cases, which we're going to talk about a little bit, if you don't mind. But 
It's got to be incredibly intense, detailed work that consumes a lot of time. So I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of New York, which is Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all of Long Island, a district of about 10 million people. And I focused pretty early on in my career prosecuting organized crime cases, which, as you said, maybe we'll talk about. So, yeah, it it was pretty demanding. I was working six and a half days a week, probably 12 to 14 hours a day, Monday through Friday, and most of Saturday, and a part of Sunday. Getting home to see Jennifer once in a while, thank you. But she was working pretty hard, too, so we had a pretty busy schedule. But I loved it. It was, in some respects, some of the most time-intensive work that I've ever done. Obviously, right now, my schedule's pretty busy, too. But if you enjoy what you're doing, it doesn't feel like labor. It feels so very, very rewarding. Well said. Well said. I'm with Jeff Mearns, everybody, the president of Ball State University on all kinds of people. Um, I got to throw 1984 in there because it seems to me there was something about Olympic trials that came up. Um, what was that all about back well, in the day? Well, so I remember very clearly when I decided I wanted to be a competitive distance runner. I was 12 years old, going on 13, and saw Frank Shorter, a Yale graduate, win the gold medal in the Olympic marathon in okay. 1972. And I turned to my father and I said, that's what I want to do. I want to represent the United States in the Olympics uh, in the marathon. And so, um, you know, and my father, who was pretty sure I'm a 12-year-old kid, you don't go out the next day and run 20 <laughs> miles to prepare. But he helped me develop a plan. And which led to me qualifying for the Olympic trials for the 1984 Olympic trials. Is that a fond memory? It was sure? a fond memory up until about four weeks before the race when I was diagnosed with a stress fracture. So I watched the race that I had worked 12 oh, years no, to compete no. in. I watched it on a little black and white TV in my apartment in Morristown, New Jersey. Not the best day of my life. Oh, man. Black and white TV. Folks, we're going to be back with Jeff Mearns uh, to talk a little bit more about a career in prosecution as long as also moving into education right after this break. Welcome back, everybody. Jeff Mearns is our guest today, and most of you know Jeff Mearns in the area as the president of Ball State University. Um, president Mearns, um, let's get into the career the legal career, um, what was it like dealing with the Terry Nichols case and the Anthony Harris case? Both, I know one took you away from home for quite a time, working out of Denver. Um, The other one I didn't know much about, but caught on a 2020 segment. And I'm just wondering what you had to put into that kind of effort in terms of the detail and the accuracy and and if you'd be willing to share some of the details of those two cases in particular. Sure. So after most of my career in New York was prosecuting organized crime cases, high-profile cases involving the Gambino family, and then in early 1997 was asked by the Attorney General of the United States, Janet Reno, to assist with the second prosecution in the Oklahoma City bombing case. Many of your listeners recall that the principal involved in that was Timothy McVeigh, but his co-conspirator was Terry Nichols. The cases were severed, and I was recruited to be one of the principal trial lawyers in the case against Terry Nichols. Allow me to ask, too, by the way, in in the cases uh, that you talked about in New York initially, was there any concern that you had personally about 
the Gambinos and others coming after you? No, you know, organized crime, it's a business. And there's a major disincentive for them to go after law enforcement agents or prosecutors. So, I mean, there is some risk involved, but we generally felt that uh, they were going to. And I had two little kids at that time living in Brooklyn in a neighborhood where some of them were living. Yeah. Uh, But no, not particularly. Now, when we were out in Denver uh, prosecuting the uh, Oklahoma City bombing cases, there was a concern about domestic terrorism. You know, Terry Nichols and, and Timothy McVeigh had had blown up, blown up a federal building and it killed federal right. agents and federal uh, employees. So we had a lot of security when we were out in Denver. Okay. Um, it was, as you suggested a moment ago, an extraordinarily complex case. Um, we had 25,000 separate interviews, thousands, tens of thousands. 25,000 interviews? Correct. And we had to distill that down to just probably a few dozen people that we wanted to call to establish the, uh, you know, to prove the charges in the case. Obviously, you know, thousands and thousands of pieces of evidence, everything from the rubble of the building to forensic evidence to identification evidence, DNA evidence. So it was a very complex case. So we were working, uh, you know, we were working 16 hours a day, uh, pretty much seven days a week to prepare for the trial and then during the trial. And also I want to give a shout out to another Hoosier, Larry Mackey, who is a prominent lawyer in Indianapolis, was the lead prosecutor oh, in the Terry okay. Nichols case. I was not aware of that connection. And Larry was the work ethic that I've never seen. And I often describe Larry Mackey as an unsung hero in the United States, the way he represented us uh, all in that case, the way he led the prosecution team was uh, truly, uh, truly remarkable. And and. Obviously, you didn't find that work exhausting necessarily. Well, I was pretty tired by the time I got home. And what what your listeners may not know is that while I was um, out in Denver and before the trial, I was coming back to Cleveland where we were living at that time. And Jennifer got pregnant with the twins while I was out uh, in Denver. So she's home holding down three children and two on the way. And I got home uh, in January of 1998 just in time. And about 72 hours later, she went into premature labor. So, um, Good timing. Thank it, you. It was good. She made sure I got home uh, in time for the twins. So, yeah, it was a pretty hectic time in our life, but I think we both look back on it um, quite fondly and with a sense of gratitude that I was given the honor of representing the United States of America in one of the most important criminal prosecutions in our history. Yeah, it's just it's such a noteworthy I think, thing on your resume. And clearly, there are challenges running a university. But were there any real challenges with that whole prosecution thing besides the time commitment and the attention to detail, maybe? So I think what's hard for maybe some folks to imagine is the amount of pressure that we felt. So you're representing the United States of America, the country you love, the people you love, in an important case in which the defendants were trying to overthrow our government, were trying to inspire uh, a violent overthrow of our government. So you had security concerns, you're working long hours. There were 19 children. It was a daycare center that was destroyed uh, in that bombing. So you had the emotional pressure. The emotional side of all that. Of meeting those parents. and then, you know, the courtroom every day, your trial, your actions were covered by every news outlet in the world. Correct. Um, so it was, as I say. All yeah. your moves are being covered quite as well. Right. And you're away from your family. So there's no respite. There's no 
diversion from that activity because I was coming home to a hotel room at 11 or 12 o'clock every night, going back into the office at, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning. So actually, in some respects, then getting home and being reunited with Jennifer and my three children and then the two new ones, while that was pretty hectic, it was it was <laughs> qu- uh, quite a relief because it was a very yeah. private and wonderful time for us to be together yeah, as a family. Yeah, a good transition. Yeah. yeah. What are what are a couple of the memories with you at home after the prosecution and as the kids started getting older, what kind of things did you find yourself doing with them? So a couple of things. One is the daily routine. I would often work and Jennifer would prepare dinner. I wouldn't get home till 6.30 or 7 o'clock. But my favorite thing was when the kids were really little was bathing them and getting them ready for bed and helping Jennifer ah. read to them or sing to them. Very cool. many fond memories. Um, and the other thing was uh, on weekends, I would often take all of the children, all five of them on a Saturday to go to the movie so that Jennifer could get a nap. <laughs> and so taking five kids Give and getting Mom popcorn thank you. Yeah, yes. right, and go away for, you know, by the time you get to the movies. And so I think my kids remember that uh, that era of watching all those And you Disney always movies. brought a snack home for Jennifer, of course. She was just happy to have the nap. Um, so those are and then uh, and then we. Uh, we would go to Maine every summer, load up the minivan with bikes. And when they were kids, we were, you know, high chairs and bicycles and things. And we have many, many fond memories of being together as a family up in on Mount Desert Island. I think Maine. it's so wonderful, uh, having had Jennifer on the program, to just talk about how the two of you managed to balance two great career paths, but also juggling the children. I just think that's a very interesting story to share, and I appreciate you doing that. And at some point in time, um, universities came calling instead of prosecution. Um, What led you into that whole situation at Cleveland State and then on to Northern Kentucky and finally back to Ball State? So was that transition? So I was practicing law and was contacted. They were looking for the dean of the law school, a new dean of the law school at Cleveland State. Okay. And when they reached out to me, I thought they were looking for my father because my father (laughs) had been a law professor for 40 years. He'd been dean of the law school at the University of Cincinnati. So you're going to be a recommendation for your father. (laughs) As it turned out, they were looking for me, and I had the great good fortune. Uh, President Michael Schwartz appointed me as the dean of the law school, and it put my uh, professional career on a different track, and which led me here to Ball State. It was nothing that I ever thought I would do. I thought I would continue to be a lawyer, maybe be a judge at, at some point. Um, I suspect if you asked my friends in college or law school or in the U.S. Attorney's Office who would be the least likely among them to be a university president, I think I would win that poll. <laughs> but here I am today and, and feeling quite fortunate. I won't pursue the details of why that might be the case. Thank you. But um, did you ever sense missing the legal side of things? Sometimes I miss uh, I, I miss that uh, the excitement and the challenge of being in a courtroom. I don't miss some of the more tedious aspects of being a lawyer, some of that detail-oriented okay. work that you, uh, that you describe. Um, and as my father always said, is if you love what you're doing presently, you never look back with r- regret. You look back with satisfaction 
in that that work brought you to the rewarding work that you're doing today. And so I feel so very fortunate That's to be valuable, the president of Ball State. valuable statement from your dad, I think. Um, I just miss serving pancakes to my children when they were all around the, <laughs> around the breakfast table. You have to round them all up and bring them back to Muncie and get those pancakes out somehow because yeah, they're kind of spread out all over the place. No, no doubt. Um, any real challenges as we wrap up that you sense universities are facing? Well, I think colleges and universities all across the country are facing the challenge of communicating clearly and persuasively of the continuing value of a college degree. I appreciate that very much. We've been with Jeff Mearns, the president of Ball State University. I so appreciate you coming down to Roof Boom and having a chat, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity, and it's always good to be with you, Dr. Joe. I appreciate that so much. We'll be back next week, everybody. So thanks again for tuning in to Roof Boom, and all kinds of people have a very good week.